Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right. Uh, first of all, hello. Um, and second of all, welcome to the show. Sometimes if I state the premise of the show at the beginning of the show, it helps me. I don't know if it helps you or not. But so as we began to conceive of this show, and I think the idea might have uh, germinated a little bit uh, when we were visiting and going on a tour. When I say we, I mean producer Betsy Kaplan and me. We were going on a tour of the Copper Beach Institute, whose executive director, Brandon Nappy, is right here in the studio right now as one of the guests. The Copper Beach Institute is on the campus of Holy Family Passionate Retreat Center, Passionist Retreat Center. They also, also are very passionate, but uh, in West Hartford. And I think we, it was that day that we kind of got to talking about the idea about people who observe, embrace um, multiple religious traditions. I, I know a lot of people who who self-identify um, as either Buddhist Catholics or Catholic Buddhists or some some hybrid version of that. I don't know if there's a good portmanteau uh, w- word for that. Uh, and we talked a little bit more about it. We thought, well, that would be an interesting thing to talk about because I think in some ways we have a pretty linear way of thinking about all this stuff. And um, and, and so that's what we've done. Betsy Kaplan has gone on to assemble such a show indeed. So also in studio with uh, Brandon is uh, Ben Dubow, who's a co-lead pastor, Riverfront Family Church, uh, where I make my spiritual home. Uh, and joining us uh, from the NPR studios uh, in New York is Father Michael, Michael Holleran, Catholic priest, sensei, uh, Zen teacher, uh, and former Carthusian monk. He, he currently serves at the Church of Notre Dame in Morningside Heights, Manhattan. What is it about Morningside Heights? All like all the cool religious stuff happens there, uh, and leads the Dragon's Eye Zendo in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, joining us by phone uh, is Nat Case. You see, we have a cast of thousands here. Uh, uh, joining us by phone is Nat Case, a cartographer in Minneapolis and a Quaker who blogs at mapheadblogspot.com. Um, all right, so that's everybody who's here. And so we want to talk. And so everybody here is in one way or another exploring this nature of dualism. I mean, I guess maybe I'll just just quickly say we have two people who are exploring, in in fact, that interesting, interesting dynamism between uh, Catholicism and and, and Buddhism. Uh, uh, Ben, uh, who runs a Baptist church, American Baptist church with an evangelical but very inclusive bent to it, uh, grew up uh, a conservative you. Uh, and Nat Case is a Quaker who also identifies, uh, although he doesn't like the word. You don't. Do you reject the word uh, atheist, Nat Case? I know you're bo- you're <laughs> bored with it or something. I'm I'm kind of resigned to it uh, just because there isn't really a good alternative. Okay, so you could uh, be like a qua- Quakeist. I'm trying to come up with portmanteaus for all of you, but it doesn't work that well. But um, all right, so uh, so we're going to talk about all this and. Um, and, and, and maybe just very quickly, because we are a little bit pressed for time because of pledge, I'll have each one of you um, tell your stories, at least insofar as that's the case. Ben, you're sitting closest to me. Uh, I give people a better sense than I just did about these two religious traditions, what they are and have been for you. Sure. You know, it's great to be here and it's a great conversation to have. You know, I grew up in a conservative Jewish family. 
and uh, strong Jewish roots, and we were kosher, and uh, I went to Hebrew day school for a while before I was kicked out after two years. That's kind of a different story. But then in high school, uh, through a period of time of spiritually searching, came uh, to the, became a born-again believer, became a Christian, and, um, and for a while wasn't sure uh, how those fit together or if they fit together, and, and everyone, certainly my family, was telling me that that was a rejection of mm-hmm. Judaism. But over the years, um, I've realized that there's a lot of, uh, both are very important to me. So I still identify both as Jewish and certainly as a Christian, and my vocation is as a Christian pastor, but um, my Judaism influences every aspect of my spirituality um, and very much uh, defines, in a lot of respects, my understanding of who Jesus is um, and what Christian ethics looks like and how we live that out. And, and at this point in my life, you know, 20 plus years in, I would have a hard time untangling those two things. Mm-hmm. Jewish guy, basically, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, Brandon, how about you? Yeah, do, what, uh, do your version of what Ben just did. Sure. I, I was raised in a fairly traditional um, Italian immigrant, second-generation family uh, here in Connecticut and Waterbury. Um, had some early inclination toward priesthood, went to Notre Dame and studied medieval theology, fell in love with uh, Francis of Assisi, and really for, for a few years thought that I'd I'd be a Franciscan priest one day. The way, the way in which he fell in love with life and passionately committed to, uh, to seeing the presence of God in, in all people and all things and in, in the world around him. Um, I, I felt really called, though, to be married and to have a family. And so I left seminary and um, was still very much clear on my commitment to doing some kind of service and ministry in the world. I was at Yale Divinity School overwhelmed by debt, overwhelmed by homework, newly married, unclear as to what uh, what job I might land to pay off all this debt, uh, and completely overwhelmed by life and, and anxiety. And so I, um, I wandered into a therapist's office who was one of these uh, Zen Catholics who had mm. never heard of before. My head spun. But what I found in, in my Zen practice in those early days, in my 20s, um, was an experiential way to work with the deep uh, angst and suffering that I was experiencing. What I really realized that I'd spend so much of my life successfully running, running away from things that were painful, running after things that I thought would uh, alleviate uh, those painful experiences, and I was exhausted and running. And so it was in the experience of Zen meditation that I found a way finally to make peace with my experience and, and not run mm-hmm. and sprint away from, from life itself. All right, Father Michael, you're up. Well, I uh, I grew up on Long Island in a, in a traditional Roman Catholic family, uh, but I commuted into New York City, into Manhattan, as a high schooler uh, with the Jesuits at, at uh, the Regis High School on the Upper East Side. So I, I got a strong, humanistic, uh, open, uh, deeply uh, religious uh, training with them, and so much so that I became a Jesuit after graduation from high school. They were still doing that in those years, letting 17-year-olds into the seminary, or, or their equivalent of the seminary. And I spent five years also doing my college at uh, Fordham uh, with them. But what I discovered with with uh, with the Jesuits uh, quite early on in my training was this tremendous Catholic tradition of contemplative prayer. Uh, first of all, Ignatian meditation, and, and then you know the whole mystical tradition, which I hadn't learned anything about up until then. Um, so the result was that after I finished those five years with them and finished college, I entered the Carthusian order, which is an 11th century you know European. Uh, uh, order, uh, a contemplative order of the uh, of the church, hermits, a community of hermits, if that's not too much of an oxymoron. 
um, uh, and actually spent 22 years with them uh, on mountainsides, you know, in Vermont, uh, in the Alps, in France, in the Mother House, uh, and then also in the fields of England just before I left. So at midlife, uh, I felt the need for various reasons to leave the monastery. One of them was to explore other contemplative traditions and also to ex- exercise more of a ministry in the world. So I, I worked as a parish priest, and I have been working as a parish priest for more than 20 years now in the Archdiocese of New York. My teacher, though, as a Zen, as a Zen uh, pract- practitioner, uh, was the Jesuit priest, uh, Father Robert Kennedy, who uh, uh, teaches at St. Peter's in Jersey City, uh, retired now. Uh, but uh, he, was, he had also been my teacher when I was a Jesuit at Fordham. So we know each other for nearly 50 years now, and he was my Zen teacher. So in 2009, I became a sensei in that tradition, uh, a teacher of, of, in the Zen tradition, and also that same year w- was formally inducted into the, uh, the Presbyterate, the, the, uh, the, the Fellowship of the Priesthood of the Archdiocese of New York. So uh, I certainly have those two traditions, you know, very uh, active and present uh, in my own uh, uh, practice now. Hmm? All right. So, uh, in that case, uh, you're the one who's left. Uh, give us your thumbnail. <laughs> um, well, I was I was raised um, religiously speaking, nothing in particular, um, a secular household in New Jersey, um, and I, I, I think I kind of grew up thinking religion was stupid, uh, <laughs> to be honest, um, and not having a whole lot of knowledge to base that on. But I think that was that was kind of what, if you had asked me when I was ten, uh, that's what I would have said. I went to a Quaker high school uh, because it was a good liberal school, and my parents thought it thought it was good, and I thought it was good, and so that's where I went. Um, and discovered that religion was actually kind of interesting. It raised a lot of interesting questions, and uh, the thought process I went into it was, and then the, the, or the non-thought uh, was um, gave you really interesting interesting perspective on on stuff. Um, I fell away from Quakerism in college and uh, uh, and, and the time afterwards. Um, and I was in my first marriage uh, living in Vermont and having trouble with that, and a friend uh, suggested or said, here's one thing I want you to do is to do something for yourself. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go to Quaker meeting because I liked Quaker meeting. I, liked, I enjoyed sitting in there and, and being in silent worship. And so I went to the local Quaker meeting, and uh, uh, man, eventually, actually, not all that long thereafter, joined joined the joined the meeting, became a member. Uh, when marriage number one fell apart, um, uh, I was married second time under care of meeting, and uh, moved to Minneapolis and uh, joined the meeting there and became active in the. Uh, we all became active in the, the meeting there, and then. Uh, uh, so I, I don't want to spend too much time on Quaker history, but there have been a whole lot of schisms and people who think the Quakers are just the uh, the liberal uh, sitting in silence people. There's a whole swath of of uh, that. That's if you look at look at a, at a range that's the far left left end of the spectrum, and they go all the way to pastor led led evangelical Quakers, um, and. Uh, we were not finding ourselves super satisfied with our life in the liberal Quaker meeting in the Twin Cities, and we joined kind of the next notch over, which was Conservative Friends, uh, this, this small group that we've been members of now for five years, uh, our whole family, a small Quaker group. 
and uh, that's where we are. But uh, so I'm going to st- uh, do this process in reverse. I'm going to be like the naysayer or something here. But so. Uh, first of all, when you say conservative, do you mean, uh, to, to the extent that we could talk about Quaker orthodoxy, um, th- this would be more uh, more close? They say yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I, could, I, could, like, I could do 10 minutes on Quaker history here, which you probably don't want to, want to do. Um, but yeah, there, there's been schisms. Uh, I mean, the, the two main points of schism within the Quaker world have been uh, scripture versus experience, you know, the... Uh, Messages that you that, that or messages or senses of things you get from God versus what it says in the Bible. On one hand, on the other hand, um, is it the, 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 the you receive messages and you you hear things, but you also there's a kind of discernment that uh, goes on group wise saying, yeah, is that really is that really a message from God or is that the roast beef you had last last night? Um, and the discernment of what's what's right or what's wrong happens on a local meeting level or on a broader. Uh, yearly meeting, which is a, a bunch of monthly meetings level, and you know basically who gets to say what's what's right, right. Uh, happens. Well, but Conservatives uh, uh, claim, and I think they're pretty right, uh, to have hewed pretty much in the same way that things have gone uh, since George Fox and his ilk founded uh, founded the group 370 years ago, I guess at this point, um, and there have been people leaving to the right and the left, uh, scriptural, non-scriptural, yearly meeting, non-meeting. Um, but this, Nate, this would be a strange thing, at least from my outsider perspective, for you to be associating yourself with or you to be focusing on. In other words, the more orthodox you get as a Quaker, I mean, Quake, you know, Quakerism, as I understand it anyway, started as a Trinitarian movement. It's still basically uh, Trinitarian. There's a belief in God. There's a belief in uh, in, in, in Jesus. Um, so if you don't believe in God, <laughs> why do you care? Why do you care what, what's going on there? So um, there's two two answers to that. One is that uh, one goes back to the the, the uh, you know why I went back and joined the meeting in the first place, and that was because it works. Uh, because the when I go into meeting and you know the the, the phrase in quick and quickerdom is expect and waiting. That what you, it's not just it's not meditation. It's not just sitting there in the science. You're you're waiting and hoping that. Um, some understanding, some sense of what you're supposed to do, some sense of where you are, what, you, what should happen, that will appear, and it'll often appear to the group as a whole. Uh, that's a, a very special thing uh, in Quaker life, what they call a covered covered meeting. Um, so it was. I I joined because it because it works for me because it's a it, it's a thing that works. I don't necessarily believe in the orthodox explanation of why it works, um, but that doesn't mean it doesn't work. All right, so um, that's Nat Case. Uh, I, I, we, we just, I'm going to quickly run through you two guys, then we're going to, you three guys, we're going to take a little break here. But I, I just, you know, let's go to, I'll, I'll do the whole thing in reverse. So Father Michael Halloran, you know, I mean, there are ways in which 
um, these two traditions, uh, Buddhism and Roman Catholicism, complement one another. But there are ways in which some people, particularly once again from that viewpoint of orthodoxy, would say, wow, you know, the minute Thomas Merton took off from San San Francisco, supposedly saying, as he said at the time, Christian mantras uh, to seek more enlightenment in the East, he was effectively saying, well, so it's not all there. Everything I need isn't there in Roman Catholicism, isn't there in Christ. Uh, There are Orthodox Catholics who have a problem with that, right? Yes, and that's not what he would say either, and that's not what I would say. Everything is there. Trouble is, a lot of it's been buried or lost. You know, for example, I would agree with Thomas Merton when he says, you know, the contemplative thread uh, even in Catholicism, you know, but certainly in the other uh, Christian denominations, had had been largely lost. Uh, not only the ideal, but the actual practice of it. I even encountered that in, in my in my religious order and in, in the monks themselves, uh, who had you know, uh, at least when I had originally entered, uh, had kind of lost the uh, the wisdom uh, narrative, uh, the the ability to tra- to transmit the wisdom of contemplative prayer, even though it's there in the tradition. So what that was was a way of, is there some way uh, perhaps even the East can help us to uh, reclaim, you know, discover uh, the, the ability, uh, remind us of, 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 of our own tradition uh, of a deep, contempt, silent, contemplative prayer, uh, which then purifies, the, you know, the notion of God, it purifies the notion of yourself, uh, it opens up whole new, new perspectives. Uh, and that's what I had, I had found, too. Uh, my friend, uh, the uh, interfaith theologian, uh, the Catholic theologian, uh, Paul Knitter, uh, who's uh, perhaps the foremost uh, Catholic theologian on interfaith dialogue currently, though he's retired now, uh, speaks about double belonging and about uh, without, he wrote a, Buddha, a book called Without Buddha, I Could Not Be a Christian. A very provocative title. And the point being, I'm discovering the hidden treasures that had been fairly somewhat lost uh, over the centuries in my own Catholic tradition by, you know, seeing what's emphasized uh, and what's presented, you know, in the Buddhist tradition. Um, and, and that's one of the primary things. So even though, t- technically speaking, everything is there, it's not all on the surface. It's not all, uh, it's, it's not all evident. Uh, and this uh, contemplative strain, this, this deep, silent uh, prayer and, uh, and all the, uh, the immense riches to which that brings us in understanding God and ourselves in the world uh, had, been, had been really uh, buried somewhere. And uh, the, uh, the East has helped us uh, to re- recover that, which is basically ours, but uh, hadn't been recognized. All right. So I am going to take a little break here. We'll get back to Brandon and to Ben uh, when we do that. Uh, we're talking about dual religious pursuits. Uh, and we'll be back after a very, very, very short break here. Love you is complicated. Love you is complicated. Love you is complicated. So we're back. We're talking about this notion of of dual spiritual traditions. Um, and I'm not going to name all the guests because we're run, run out of time if I do that. So uh, already now I'm talking to Brandon Nappy, executive director of the Copper Beach Institute. Um, so, Brandon, just building on what uh, Father Michael said, in some ways, I think when we think about religion, uh, we could ask the question, is religion about who or what to follow or is it about how to be? And, of course, the answer is yes. Um uh, but in some ways, the things that, y- that you do, that the ways in which Buddhism would tincture your, your Catholicism, I'm guessing, would be in that kind of how-to-be area. That's right. Um, I mean, I think what drew me to Zen 
was its pragmatism um, and its its just very clear embodied instruction about how to practice, um, how to utilize this contemplative practice so that you can uh, soften your heart to God, to others, that you could surrender. Uh, my own teacher and Father Michael's teacher, uh, Robert Kennedy, um, his teacher, who was a, a Yamada Roshi, uh, said, I'm not trying to make you a Buddhist, he said to Father Kennedy. I'm trying to empty you in imitation of your Lord Jesus Christ who emptied himself. So for me, anyway, uh, the practice of Zen meditation is a practice of surrender. And I know to to a certain community, this looks like heresy. It looks like syncretism. But when I think about Orthodox Christianity, we have a, as a core fundamental teaching that Jesus was 100% human and 100% divine. So baked within the Christian tradition is combining two things that otherwise look like they ought not to be combined. And of course, the, the intellectual history of Christianity began with, um, with the kind of integration of the early Christian experience of Jesus with uh, Greek philosophy. Right? So this idea of bringing in um, a philosophical tradition uh, from outside of Christianity and adopting it is actually Orthodox Christianity. So the adoption of Zen by some Christians is, is actually not a new move in some ways. It's borrowing a very ancient move from the first few centuries of the church. Right. And actually, Paul Nitter in the book that Father Michael was citing, Ben, uh, does a, uh, a nice job of linking this Buddhist notion of no self to what Paul says in his letter to the Galatians, where he says, uh, it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Um, so for you, uh, Christ who lives in you, obviously there, there's a way that Christianity absolutely is an extension of Judaism, but it's also constantly in conflict with Judaism. So I don't know, what do you do about that? You know, I think you live in that conflict, and I've become okay with that and kind of in that mystery. And, uh, you know, for me, it starts with this premise that uh, if God is true, which I believe he, she, it is, um, then all truth is God's truth. So I'm never surprised to find God's truth in different areas and different places. And I, and I think it's up to us to then to kind of pull those things together and, and, and hear the revelation and see and experience the revelation in lots of different ways. And so that what we see through Judaism and what we see through the Gospels— and what we see through Buddhism and Taoism and Islam and other expressions and even non-faith-based uh, expressions is a revelation of truth, a revelation of God, a revelation of love, of beauty. And so I think we hold those. And where there's conflict, um, we hold that as mystery. And that's beautiful. And, and we think on it and we, and we gnaw on it. You know, the ancient rabbis talked about the idea of chewing on the scriptures and chewing on the word of God, which I think is a great image for it. Mm -hmm. And that um, we kind of literally chew on it and ruminate on it. Um, and I think that's a powerful way. And, and often truth is much deeper than, than surface. Um, we should say, I mean, despite the fact that this is an evangelical Baptist church, nominally anyway, uh, not just nominally, uh, but I, just Actually, say that I say that because we're super inclusive and, you know, there's... Um, Which is good to know that some evangelicals are. Yes, exactly. We're trying to reclaim that. Yeah. But one thing that has happened in this church is that you've got us saying the mourner's Kaddish uh, every Sunday uh, for a year. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing a lot of Baptist churches, they probably don't do that. Um, and, but I, I feel like the, the tension would be more 
I think Christians, I guess, I would imagine, I, like, I don't know, every time you speak Hebrew and things like that in church, I think we all go, oh, yeah, that's great. He speaks Hebrew. We should do that. Uh, the tension would be more, I think, with your older tradition. Like, how can you be a Jew if you're doing this? Sure. And I, I certainly get a lot of that. You know, my, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. And, and so there's a lot built into culturally the sense of Jewish identity. And there's definitely a historical sense of that when you embrace Christianity, embrace Jesus, if you're baptized, that you're rejecting that. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot, I get a lot of that, and, and people who kind of be like, oh, you're just a Jew for Jesus, which is kind of a slur coming from Judaism. <laughs> um, and so, but to me, it, Jesus himself was Jewish, right? And it's if he is who he says he is and did what he said he did, then it's a very Jewish thing to embrace him. Um, and I, I really do feel like we're not rejecting anything. I mean, the, the Jewish notion is that we are searching for that which Jesus claimed to be. Um, maybe he was it. So in that case, I'm circling back to you before we uh, get to our next break here. Um, you know, what, it was very interesting what you said about why you're a Quaker, uh, although you're not a believer. You said because it works. I, I, I think maybe some people would say that faith is sort of the opposite, right? That y- you believe, even if it doesn't work, uh, you believe uh, in, until it does. So, I mean, so for you, being a member of the Society of Friends, the, I don't know, the efficacy of it is what, that's how you're experiencing it, right? That it just somehow or other is good for you. Who knows why? Well, that's, that's how it works on a personal basis. I mean, that's how why I personally feel like it's it's worth, you know, getting up on a Sunday morning and going going to meeting. Um, when you talk about being a member of something, though, I, I, that's lumping a bunch of things together. Uh, I mean, I have my own personal, uh, this is good for me. It's like, you know, equivalent of going out for, for, exor- for exercise. It is a thing that I do with my family, and it's a, it's a sort of a, a joint family thing. And for a lot of people, that's really central to whatever their religious experience is. I'm also a member of this particular Quaker meeting, and that's actually been very important. I mean, that's a lot of why we're we're in the group still is because of the group, because of this group of a dozen or so people. Um, and there's, but part of why that group is that still holds together is because of the wider sense of uh, the yearly meeting that we're part of and of Quakerism in general. And it's a complicated interplay but amongst all those things. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think of faith, I-, I have a real problem with the idea that faith means believing even if it's not factually uh, factually accurate. Uh, that seems like a, a pretty, <laughs> seems like, seems like a, a thing an atheist or secularist would make up just a, you know, just a snarky remark. I mean, faith means it, it's like being a faithful spouse. It's it's about stick stick with itness, um, and being faithful isn't factual or counterfactual. It's it's like it's you know it's like it's like saltiness versus sweetness. You can have the same thing in the same food, or not, or one or the other. Um, I, I don't I don't think there. I think that I think that the linkage between faithfulness and uh, documentary confirmability and act and factual accuracy is uh, is, is a problematic one. All right. I'm going to have to interrupt you there in that case. Uh, and we are going to take a quick break here. Some people are going to ask you to support public radio. If conversations like this one are one of the reasons that you like public radio, please do consider giving. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation. I may tell if the, if you give if you pledge a lot, I'll tell my Carthusian monk joke, which I promised Father Michael Halloran I would tell. God is in the oceans deep. Some say God goes there to sleep. God is in the mountains. 
And we're back. We're not running C's right here. We're not running our thank yous. You want to run them? You can do it if you want. At our staff meeting about this episode, Colin said it would bring clarity to ancient Confucians. And I said, why pick on the Confucians? They're not the only ones. And he said, no, we need to cut through all the Confucians. And I said, I can't endorse violence. And he said, today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is a Pesca Presbyterian. Part of Bill Curry was played by Robert Thurman. On tomorrow's show, The Secret Lives of Numbers. I hear seven is furious. And now... Back to Colin. Right. So you just heard the fourth wall breaking there. That was very cool. Uh, so before we come back, I, I have to get this. It's not really a Carthusian monk joke. It's about any monastery with a vow of silence. But let's say it's. Um, oh, and, and Nat is <laughs> Nat hung up. You must have offended. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was not thinking that the Quaker <laughs> atheist would be the person who's offended. But um, so uh, a, a new uh, arrival to uh, a Carthusian monastery uh, shows up and it goes before the abbot. And the abbot says, you have to be silent, totally silent for a whole year. And then you can say one word. So he comes before the abbot after a year and he says, the. And the abbot says, all right, two years have to go by now. And then you can say another word. And so two years goes by and he comes to the abbot and he says, food. Uh, and the abbot says, all right, another two years have to go by, and then you can come and you can say yet another word to me. So two more years go by, and he comes before the abbot and says, stinks. And the abbot says, you know, you've been here five years. You've done nothing but complain. Uh, (laughs) All right, that's like my favorite joke in the world. All right, so back to more serious matters with Brandon Nappy, executive director of the Copper Beach Institute on the campus of Holy Family Passionist Retreat Center in West Hartford. Uh, Ben Dubow, a co-lead pastor at Riverfront Family Church in Hartford. Father Michael Holleran, assuming he didn't hang up after that joke. Uh, Catholic priest, sensei, uh, teacher, and former Carthusian monk. He currently serves uh, at the Church of Notre Dame in Morningside Heights, Manhattan, and leaves leads the the Dragon's Eye Zendo in Midtown Manhattan. And maybe if we get him back, Nat Case, cartographer in Minneapolis and Quaker, uh, who blogs at mapheadblogspot.com. All right, so um, so as people are listening to this conversation, and if you're just tuning in, it's a conversation about people who, who feel as though two different religious traditions, or in the case of Nat, uh, a religious tradition and um, a, a sense that God does not exist, uh, um, can, can exist side by side inside them. Um, so, um, Father Michael, uh, you know, in some ways there is this kind of, uh, I don't know, I think there's sort of a prejudice from um, other worlds uh, against Americans, this notion that they see this as some kind of smorgasbord, some kind of buffet where they can just go through the line and take the things that they want from these various uh, traditions. Um, uh, and and there's a there's a little bit of sneering that goes on at that. Um, explain Explain that, why that wouldn't be a valid way to look at this. Well, it depends. I don't. I don't see it as a particularly American thing either. But but uh, if if they mean that syncretism that, that uh, Brandon referred to, that, that kind of uh, cafeteria Catholic or whatever cafeteria anything, um, I see that as a danger only if you are just you know flippantly more or less flippantly. It's oh I like this and I like that and maybe I'll take take this I'll take that. Uh, but if you if you genuine, genuinely respect and delve deep down into uh, a religious tradition, respecting its integrity, you know the fullness uh, that it presents, um, and then you know try to hold intention or, or see the mutual challenges, the mutual fecundation that can occur, you know, as they meet both practically and, and intellectually, 
Uh, that's a whole different thing. Uh, people like Houston Smith, who wrote the, the wonderful book, The World's Religions, you know, he did that very much himself. He exemplified that. He, st- he stayed and was, first of all, and primarily a, you know, a, a Christian, a Methodist his whole life. But he actually practiced, you know, you know, f- you know fully engaging, you know, in, in, in other traditions as well, both, both Sufism and, and uh, Zen, for example. Um, uh, and uh, yoga, so uh, th- that's the kind of thing. You know, if you if if you are really exploring uh, and respect the integrity of a tradition, uh, then I think the the, the contact can be uh, tremendously fruitful, uh, not only for you but for the tra- traditions themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Brandon, I would also think uh, once w- the minute I start talking about Buddhism, I realize that I don't know anything about Buddhism, despite the fact that every few years Bill Curry gives me a new book about it, uh, which. I put on a shelf, uh, but sometimes read. But I, I feel as though one of the ways in which maybe the Western tradition and Buddhism diverge a little bit and Buddhism can help out the Western religious tradition is kind of in that area of ego, too. That the sense of um, ego sometimes makes us want to know and cling to what's right as opposed to what's true. We get very attached to the idea that we're right, we're doing the right thing. Um, and I'm wondering if Buddhism maybe helps you get past that and maybe more towards what's true? I don't know. How am I doing here? I think that's right. I think um, if by ego, what we're describing is the relative self, uh, the self that is defined by profession, accomplishment, nationality, race, gender. It's not that the ego is bad. It's not that having an identity is bad. All of us carry around with us some relative identity white male. I'm 42 years old. It's not that that's untrue. It's just not the whole story. Um, And so spiritual practice, be it Christian, uh, Zen, uh, Buddhist, or or any tradition, it seems to me is about melting away um, the relative self, or at least contextualizing the relative self in a larger context. In other words, um, I'm not only my profession, my activity. There is something bigger that is within me, what a Christian uh, tradition would call uh, uh, that I'm a child of God, that I participate in the infinite life of God, and that the misidentification of who I am with any of these roles or activities is the great, um, is the great illusion. So Zen is a tradition particularly skillful at the surrender of identity, and this can help Christians uh, immensely. And it can help Christians also to heal the kind of divide between body and spirit, which I think has been endemic in the Christian tradition, the kind of dualism which pits the spirit against the body. And for much of history, the Christian life has been has been about trying to escape the body, which is an enemy and trying to attack you. And so how do we heal this divide, this perceived divide? Um, and I think that's why Karl Rahner, 20th century Jesuit theologian, said that the future Christian will be a mystic or won't be at all, uh, that, that this sense of uh, continuity and connection with God at all times is sort of the central Christian contemplative experience. Which I think ties into, you know, you're talking about the, uh, right versus true. And I think those are very different. And, and orthodoxy traditionally is about right, but not necessarily true. It can actually be in opposition to truth. And we get stuck, you know, the, the problem with the systematic theologian is they're trying to put God in this box where everything adds up and, and makes sense and, and works within a, a clear system. But we know, and I don't know why this would be controversial, some people will get upset, but God is not a Baptist, God is not a Christian, God is not a Buddhist, God is not a Catholic, God is not a Jew, he's not a Muslim. God is outside of all of this, and these are all 
ways, pathways to understand the divine that we seek. And the more that we can kind of find these different paths that work together, it's about truth instead of necessarily what fits our system that's a construct for us. And we have to let people get outside of those constructs in order sometimes to truly discover the divine. Right. Joseph yeah, Gamble. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. go ahead. Jump if, in I could, yes, if I could address both of those uh, things, too. In my experience, in my conviction, uh, the single greatest contribution that, that, that the Eastern religions can make to, to the West, not just Christianity, but Western philosophy, Western, the Western way of, uh, of being and seeing, seeing oneself, is to uh, break through and break apart, uh, dethrone the ego, show us that you know we tend to see ourselves as individuals, uh, separate, and then all that goes along with that, oh, I have to find my way, I have to, everybody else is a threat, is an enemy, I've got to make my way in the world, and I'm all by myself, and, and all that comes from that. The illusion, uh, the word that Brandon just used is very apt, the illusion of separation, the illusion that we're not fundamentally connected to the world, to one another, and to the absolute reality of what we call God. Um, that's what gets break broken down, you know, in, in these practices and in this 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 view of the world. Uh, so that is a major liberation for us, and that's that's what we've come to realize in contemplation: who we are, a child of God, and as Christians would say, and as Brandon just pointed out, um, or, or or you know, connected to the all. Um, and then on the question of the question of God, that's very very well said. Uh, the great uh, Protestant theologian Paul Tillich uh, put it well. Um, uh, used to teach at Union Theological Seminary just up the street from where I currently live, and he said we should have a hundred year moratorium on the word God in the West because we think we know what we're talking about. As Saint Augustine famously said, "Si comprehenderis non est Deus," which is, if you've understood it, it's not God. If you have any idea at all of God, it's false. Thomas Aquinas pointed out the same thing. But somehow we all seem, seem to think, especially in Christianity, oh, I know who God is, blah, 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 blah. And meanwhile, the East, the East doesn't say, Buddhism, Zen particularly, doesn't say anything about it. So much so that, that, it, that it's deemed atheist. Well, but it's not. It has a tremendous sense of the absolute, you know, uh, and of the ultimate transcendent mystery uh, of things. Uh, but they refuse to call it God because then you're using a word and so, you, you, immediately, you immediately lost it. I think Joseph Campbell said maybe the ultimate act of impudence is assuming that God is what we think God is. Exactly. Um, exactly. So, so, uh, so we do have Nat back. So, Nat, I want to get back to this notion of interconnectedness because I'm th- thinking uh, of you as somebody who's pretty scientifically minded. Well, you get down to the quantum level anyway. Things are very interconnected and even starts to seem uh, a little bit more like even uh, Eastern notions of Maya, uh, the idea that reality might not be made up of really very much at all. Is, is, is that an area where you can kind of feel comfortable uh, as somebody who's both a Quaker and an unbeliever? Yeah. Um, actually, I actually want to go back to something the, sure. other, the, the other participants were saying. I'm sorry, I, I can't tell who, who was saying what, but um, talking about uh, the, both the value, the value of uh, defeating ego and uh, the question of what makes something syncretistic, uh, problematically syncretistic uh, or not. Um, one of the things that I've found uh, really useful about the Quaker approach uh, rather than some other, uh, the, the, the distinctive uh, from other liberal traditions, is that it has um, what we call discernment as a major process of what we do. Yes, you're you're trying to get messages, you're trying to get sense of things. There's a there's a mystical quality to it, but there's a really strong uh, let's test that out and see what we think about it. There's a there's a pushback, and there's a sense of discipline. Um, that I think is really important to to any religious tradition, to any properly functioning religious tradition. That syncretism, that, you know, that the, to me, the, the mark between goods, work, workable syncretism and the stuff that doesn't work is who's choosing. To to what extent are you 
submitting yourself to to a discipline of some sort that isn't you getting to say what you like and what you don't like. Um, obviously, you get to to listen to listen and, and and hear and try to understand what's right and what's 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 working and what what is true, but. Um, that where it falls apart is oh that feels nice <laughs> or that doesn't feel nice and that's the, so that's the the common critique of of syncretism in general is uh, it's cafeteria style and you only end up eating the desserts um, uh, and I, I think that's that that it, to me that's that's how that that's the bit of ego that uh, when religion works well works well is that it's it's not just I mean I say that I joined the Quakers because it, it it worked. Part of what it worked is that it 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 was not just me having to think what I thought and figure out what I thought and have it be about what was in my own head, uh, my own conscious mind of of what made sense. Uh, it allowed me to open things up to other ways, the uh, uh, things that didn't didn't necessarily make sense, and and said, okay, you need to pay attention to this thing. You know, whether it makes sense or not. We have only two minutes left, so Father Michael, I'm going to go over to you really quickly. You know, we keep using this term syncretism, this kind of notion of uh, of merging religions or, or religions absorbing one another's traditions. I mean, in a way, it's an illusion, isn't it, to, to, to talk about that as something that's happening right now. We can't go back to the year dot to a, a time when religion wasn't syncretistic. Whatever we're inheriting right now uh, is the product of all kinds of absorptions. What's in uh, the Old Testament is is stuff that was basically absorbed from pre-existing religious tra- traditions, right? Well, I mean, th- th- there was some in- there was conflict, of course, but th- there was some uh, attempted integration, just as in, in Christianity, we tried to integrate some of the feasts to, you know, like the, the sun, uh, Chris- Christmas, ha- Christmas happening, and just as that at the, at the winter solstice uh, and all of that. Um, um, it's hard. To, it's yeah. You need a hermeneutic to show to show the show the different elements and how they've contributed, uh, both to see what maybe needs to be purged and what needs to be embraced. Um, uh, but also in another in, in another sense too. Just 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 I, I often say the civilized person of the twenty first century needs not necessarily to practice, but needs to be to, to know and to respect uh, the major religious traditions of the world. Uh, that kind of coming together in your own heart and mind, you know, whatever your practice is or is not, is what we really need for the 21st century. All right, I hear music. That means we have to stop. We're just getting started in our second hour. No, we don't actually have a second hour. So thanks very much to Brandon Nappy, Executive Director of Copper Beach Institute, Ben Dubow, a co-lead pastor at Riverfront Family Church. I on the clock here, Father Michael Holler and Catholic priest, Catholic priest uh, and uh, former Carthusian monk and sensei, and Nat Case, cartographer, Quaker, sort of an atheist. Uh, thanks to all of you. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan. And thanks to you if you contribute now. <laughs>